Welcome to Trinity University's Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host. I work at the public radio station in San Antonio, where we sometimes characterize what NPR does as the nation's biggest continuing education course. That's why I'm excited to be introducing this series here. The series features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. As part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni, this podcast series will include discussions and presentations on a variety of subjects. Today, you're going to be a part of the Trinity First Year Experience course called Great Books of the Ancient World. These texts are foundational for our culture. Taught by classical studies professor Karina Pash. They're important for the ways in which we understand ourselves as human beings and our society. And English professor Willis Solomon. And whatever they end up doing, they still see the value of what they did with these texts. And they see it in relation to what they're doing now. Doctors Pash and Solomon will share their experiences in teaching this course from a team teaching format to explore complex issues from Trinity's unique interdisciplinary approach. Good afternoon, Corinne. Hi, Willis. So, as we often talk about ourselves and with our colleagues, we at Trinity and the Humanities are always thinking about the question. Why do we still teach the classics of ancient Greece and Rome? We have ideas about why, but we're often questioned on it. What are your views on that? I have several answers uh, to this question, and um, I think it can be approached from two different angles. So one of them, and I'm thinking particularly of what we do in the FYE HUMA, which um, has been taught at Trinity for uh, I believe now 30 years, is that right? Oh. Uh, the FYE, oh, HUMA is 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, I started teaching in HUMA my first year at Trinity, uh, which is eight years ago. And what I love about the course is that it focuses on the great texts of the ancient world that are my specialty and that I love. But the course doesn't approach them as... Um, as a class in classics. It's really a course that focuses on wonderful, rich texts and that teaches students how to read, how to become critical thinkers, and how to write about those texts. So I think there's a value in focusing specifically on those ancient texts. And I can answer this in, in two different ways. One of them is that I think it is important to go back to the past uh, because these texts are foundational for our culture. And I don't mean by this that we're necessarily going to agree with these texts or that we're necessarily going to endorse uh, all of the values that they might project. Uh, but they're important for the ways in which we understand ourselves as human beings and our society, our political system and so on. And they're very influential in terms of literature, so they provide a foundation for the students to move from. So that's really important. And these texts are also very difficult, and I think that's also a good place to start to teach our students to become critical thinkers, to deal with texts that uh, embody complexity and critical thinking. Do you find that students, especially first-year students, students like in our first-year experience, uh, HUMA class, and, and we're talking about 
20% of the uh, entering class, that early on they need to be sold on these texts. Um, yes, so, so I think there are two categories of students. There are a few who are very gung-ho and who want to study the, the ancient Greek and Roman texts that we offer in Huma, but the majority of students do not fit in that category, and there is a, a certain <laughs> degree of resistance. So the idea of why bother reading those old texts, why should we care? Our culture tends to focus on, on the present and the future, and we're encouraged not to dwell on the past. So, but I think they, they quickly realize that uh, old does not mean irrelevant to their lives. So, and that these texts engage questions that are really Im deeply important for them. And so even if they're not sold at the beginning, I would say that by the end of the course, most of the students are very happy to have taken the course. That's my experience too. And, and in fact, I find that if I try to do too much selling, it almost undercuts the purpose. Yeah. Because... Well, for example, in Huma, we start with the Iliad. And within a few pages, we are in the middle of a power struggle that is inflected with gender, that is uh, recognizably uh, uh, testosterone-poisoned, and that they immediately recognize as a world that they have experience in. And uh, so... Um, I also find that sometimes they are surprised at how much critical thought the texts promote at the same time that how they're surprised at how accessible they are. Yes, uh, and, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about these ancient texts is that they allow you to experience a society that's uh, at once very different from ours. Uh, and very alienating in some ways. Uh, but also it allows you to recognize uh, some things about ourselves that are also present in those texts. Uh, so there's a quotation that I love by the, the great literary scholar Hugh Kenner, and he said that art is the opportunity for time travel. And I think that's a wonderful thing for you know us as human beings to do, to time travel and to encounter these ancient cultures to which we are connected, but which are not uh, the same as ours. Uh, um, so there's something really interesting in this um, sort of realization that uh, you can connect with those texts in very deep and relevant ways that connect to our lives today, but also that some aspects of those texts are deeply alien to us. Yes. Uh, um, and that's really interesting, too. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I find that that alien part is really what ups the ante of both interest and potential engagement because, you know, the, the, the initial reaction of an intelligent 18 or 19-year-old to that kind of uh, alien culture is that's not acceptable. Right. Mm. That's yeah. not what we do. That's not how... Uh, that's not appropriate regarding the status of women uh, right. in, in a free society, say. Or that's not appropriate uh, in terms of governance when you have this kind of top-down hierarchy based on blood and status. 
And once they have that reaction, it seems you sort of have them or the text has them. Yeah. Because they want to recognize it more and they want to think of ways to counteract it, to express the way we see it differently, to find examples of it. And right off the bat, they're inside that text. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it also allows them to ask critical questions about our own culture. So it's very easy to see the the misogyny of the of the Greek and Roman writers, for example. But but then it's also interesting to think about our own culture and how some of these misogynistic aspects endure today, and you can see them almost as a continuation. So I think it allows the students to um, to also look at their own lives and their old culture, their own cultures more critically and to sort of uncover the layers and the complexity of of our own world in an interesting way. Yes. There have been times in the last three decades when, from that point of view, uh, from the point of view of of cultural difference, of multiculturalism, uh, of an evolving uh, American society in which uh, um, uh, disadvantaged and underrepresented people uh, are coming into higher education increasingly, and that this literature just doesn't speak to them, and that this is not the literature of, of, uh, of their own tradition. And so, for example, at Reed College this fall, a humanities uh, course, which is required of all first-year students, which has uh, always been popular and sort of infamous among alumni of that school and of uh, other schools as well, has been uh, under very active criticism to change, even to disappear, with students occupying the classroom, etc. And it's been part of a larger movement to uh, divest from uh, 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 certain corporations and the like. And so the classics in that context, as they did in the 80s when, when I was first in teaching uh, English at the college level, um, uh, need, it seems, to uh, answer. And the teaching of the classics needs to answer that challenge. How do you see that? Yeah, I think this attitude arises from a mistake, you know? um, a mistake that assumes that those texts promote a particular political you know, um, view, which uh, I do not, nothing is true. Um, and uh, as, you know, as a woman and a first generation student myself, I think one of the things that uh, was most important in my education was to expand my horizons. So I think there's maybe even two mistakes there. There's the mistake to assume that you can only study things that are about the same, people who are the same as you are. And um, I find this strange uh, personally because I'm interested in, in others, <laughs> in other cultures, in other periods. Uh. Uh, but also the other mistake is to assume that because these texts were written, let's face it, mostly by um, white men a very long time ago, that they promote values uh, of a particular type. But that is not true of any of the texts that we read in Huma. All of these texts uh, present uh, 
questions rather than answers. So I think that to assume that these texts are irrelevant or politically problematic just shows that uh, um, these students actually need to read those texts to discover yes. what's, what's in them. And I do not think that these texts promote a particular ideology. As you were saying at the beginning, uh, very often they pinpoint the problems with, uh, for example, heroic values and what the costs of these values are for the community. Um, so I, I would urge people to, to go beyond these, these stereotypes uh, and to, to explore these wonderfully rich uh, uh, stories um, that are written in a powerful language uh, and uh, that are so important to, to talk about contemporary issues, about gender, about politics, about race, and so on. Yeah, I know I really identify with that response in, in, in a, a personal way as well. Um, I grew up among, you know, seeing often, four grandparents, none of whom was a fluent speaker of English. In fact, all of whom spoke very little English. And uh, I've always thought that my uh, interest in teaching literature in English had a lot to do with growing up hearing it rendered so badly and, <laughs> and, and, and with such a fraughtness and such anxiety and, and even fear at times. And um, so it, it kind of raises the question, well, then what is, you know, what is this tradition? Even if we say, well, it's European, it's so broad to call something by a continent. You know, yeah. what's, what's whiteness? A relatively recent conceptual invention, primarily of the 19th century. So you're right, none of those stereotypical categories apply well at all here. And the instability of, of this tradition that starts with the classics of Greece and Rome is such an opportunity for interpretation. Yeah, and maybe what those students are reacting to is a 19th century view of the classics when uh, when these texts were used to promote a particular viewpoint. But but I don't think these texts actually do that. And, um, and to close the door and refuse to read them seems so short-sighted and and sad to me, um, I think it's important to stay connected to our, to our past. Uh, and there's also something good about the alienating experience. You know, we can say that the Greeks have written some of the foundational texts that are central to our culture, but they're also so strange. And, uh, <laughs> and it's really interesting to discover that world and to discover how different they are. Yes. Um, and, and that's one of the most exciting things I find in, in encountering a new culture or a new literary tradition that you can sort of discover new ways of thinking about the world. And, you know, you may agree or disagree with them, but I think these texts just uh, um, open up questions. They do not uh, uh, provide an easy answer to any kind of... Uh, of um, of questions that that we're asking today. Yeah, no, I I agree, and and I I think it's really important to to emphasize uh, one of the points you just made about the uses of traditions and the use of this particular one in the nineteenth century by yeah. British imperialism and and as a kind of uh, 
ancillary ideological apparatus. Uh, that itself is such an interesting point of entry into yes. their study uh, and, and such an opportunity for students who maybe begin uh, reading them in translation at the first year college level, then to go on and see how they function uh, uh, within various kinds of uh, bids for power, bids for intellectual power and, and as intellectual capital in later periods. Uh, my own study of the English Renaissance, of course, the classics are all over the place, and the study of the classics becomes a kind of intellectual capital for those who would uh, find themselves in a different, um, with different opportunities from those that had traditionally only been provided by uh, uh, court and church. And so there's a whole, if you start reading these in a situation like we have our first years read them, there's a lifetime of study and thought and interpretation, just tracing them through the ages. Yeah. Uh, right now we're starting to read the Aeneid in, um, in Huma. And that's a very interesting text from this perspective because uh, um, it's deeply connected with Roman imperialism. And you will find scholars who argue that Virgil maybe was trying to promote the rule of, of the Emperor Augustus. But at the same time, when you read the text, it's harder to, um, to see that. And, uh, but it, it has this very interesting history because it has been used in different periods for political purposes. And the Italian fascists used it in a similar way. But when you read the text carefully, which is in a way all that we're expecting students in Huma to learn how to do, to be really, really, really careful, uh, thoughtful readers, uh, um, things get very complicated and, and quite dark in the Aeneid, and uh, it's very hard to read it simply as political propaganda. Yes. There's much, much more going on there. Yes, yes. Would you say that the ending is in some ways an explicit resistance to political propaganda, even though I know that ending yes. is problematic textually. Yeah, no, I would. Uh, uh, the ending uh, um, is, is shocking and uh, sort of goes against everything uh, that we have been told about uh, the character of Aeneas, uh, uh, the hero of Aeneid, until then. Uh, so he does something that goes completely against his own ideas and, and what we thought was his character. And that uh, forces you to reconsider the entire poem in a completely different light. Uh, yes. And it's one of those moments that you can only appreciate if you've read the entire poem and sort of yes. have seen the development of this idea of what is Romanness, what is civilization, uh, and seeing it turned over completely in those last few lines. Uh. Hello, this is Danny Anderson president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to our conversation with Professor Pash and Professor Solomon talking about the first year experience course, Great Books of the Ancient World. Let me take us in another direction. 
uh, with some of the time we have left and talk about, I guess this is more appropriate to a general discussion of the humanities, but a general discussion of the humanities has at its core uh, a discussion of the classics and teaching the classics and continuing that tradition in translation. And that is uh, whenever we think about career learning, whenever we think in higher education about um, experiential learning, whenever we think about what will students do when they're finished, the question, well, why are we spending this kind of uh, leisure, intellectual leisure, on these texts and these periods? And, and this applies to my own f uh, field in English, the English Renaissance, when we could be uh, uh, creating students who are more readily able for the digital technological society that they're about to enter. So I would have two answers to that. I think there's a, there's a practical answer that actually if we want to train our students to be um, productive workers, they need to be smart thinkers. So, and it's very hard to predict what career paths will be the most uh, um, obvious in a few years from now. But people who can write well, speak well, uh, and think uh, critically and carefully, we'll be able to learn any of those uh, particular skills. Uh, so that's the practical answer. Um, and we have Yuma alums in every majors in the university. They go on to study um, in all fields. It's not that they all end up doing humanities, but it's great preparation for just being a good, uh, a good thinker who can... Um, think on their feet and be fast. Um, but I also th think that there's a non-practical answer to this uh, and that uh, engaging with these questions uh, that are so central to these texts is important to, um, to help our students become better citizens uh, and better human beings. And I often hear from, from alums many years later who go back to these texts in their know in their leisure time uh, so it has nothing to do with their career but they go back to these texts because they are so central to their self-understanding uh, and and so beautiful uh. so I think that's a completely impractical answer but that we need the uh, meaning and beauty in our lives and that's the other very important component for me of this course uh. I often hear from students in that same way too. I, I, you know, I, and I think that maybe is justification in and of itself that though they've gone on to do things in finance or in, in uh, you know, to do things digital on, on a large scale or with big data or in whatever they end up doing working at nonprofits, they still see the value of what they did with these texts and they see it I find surprisingly in relation to what they're doing now. Yeah. That that they are still making that connection between that this kind of reading and the kind of occupational experience that they're having and have been having in some cases for a couple of decades. So that's not only gratifying, I think it, it argues for the importance of this. And and sometime in, in a practical way, the way I'll do this is if I have a class that isn't uh, responding well a first year class this usually happens end of October early November it's funny how uh, calendrical it is 
but not responding, say, to a large swath of text that was assigned. I'll say, well, what are you going to do at a meeting when your boss has just asked you to summarize about 100 pages of challenging reading? And um, uh, because it was 100 pages and challenging, you don't have anything to say. Right. That's not going to help your cause. <laughs> this is a really good way to practice. And they kind of get that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's important. And when we uh, we survey the Huma students uh, every a few few years, and uh, you know, you were talking about the resistance that they might have at the beginning of the semester, but when we survey them, we always have over ninety percent of the students who say that they think the course helped them become better writers and better thinkers, and that the course helped them be better students in their other courses, no matter what field yes. they ended up going into. Yes, no, that's a good point. Yeah. That, that universally happens. Yeah. They really yeah. do. So we think we make them better readers, writers and thinkers. We think we introduce them. We know we introduce them to the long view of culture on the basis of its origin in these texts. Anything else we should add? One thing that I would add that's more sort of a practical detail about our course here at Trinity that I think is very valuable is that uh, the way Huma is structured, uh, students uh, go to class four times a week uh, with two different instructors uh, um, in small groups of 13 or 14. uh, And one instructor is specifically leading a seminar discussion and the other and this is what I do, and the other, uh, and this is what you do, uh, teaches the the writing workshop. So I would say that's another strength of the course, that the idea of reading and writing is deeply interconnected. Uh, And uh, um, I think that's what makes uh, Huma very special. I've taught in another great course at another institution where we just had the seminar element. uh, and it's very different when you you work very um, intensely with somebody who teaches writing. And so I think that's another aspect of the course that I would say is unique and contributes to, to its success. Yes, I agree. I agree. And when I've uh, 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 told colleagues from other liberal arts schools uh, who have similar courses but who, do, who don't have this doubleness of, of the seminar and the writing and the intensity that that creates, uh, they uh, tend to be really impressed. They tend to think it's bold, and they wish they had that kind of uh, time to work with students and that kind of uh, partnership with another faculty member. No, I think that has been a very strong element of this course for its two decades. Yeah. Corinne, thank you. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you about these things. Thank you. This was fun. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.